Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. This is a story about a family. It's also a story of outrageous fortune, political self-dealing, and great tragedy. And I'm gonna start with the tragedy because that's how the family is largely remembered today. It happened in Italy, where a California couple was on vacation with their son. They had been trying to have a child for 18 years, and then finally they had Leland, and he was by all accounts not only a really nice kid, but he was rather precocious in many different ways. Highly intelligent, a remarkable child. Anybody would have loved him. Roland DeWalk is a historian who teaches at San Francisco State University. But while they were on a grand tour of Europe, he succumbed to typhoid at age 15. This was an enormous heartbreak, as anybody who's experienced or been around anybody who's experienced the death of a child can begin to understand. It's, it's, it was horrific for them. Jenny and her husband, who, like his son, was named Leland, had everything money could buy. But the death of their 15-year-old was devastating. The writer Mark Twain said that Leland Sr., at once lost all interest in life. So the couple made a decision that reverberates to this day, a decision to memorialize Leland by creating a school named after him. And they had this huge ranch, 8,000 acres in Palo Alto, California, and that's where they began the university. It is legally Leland Stanford Junior University. Leland Stanford Junior had been slated to attend Harvard, but instead, his death began a series of events that created a new powerhouse university and an area around it, Silicon Valley, that would change the modern world. Ironically, DeWalk says, Leland Stanford Sr., who had actually made the piles of money that it would take to start this new university, was, if anything, an anti-intellectual. He was either expelled or he dropped out of three successive secondary schools. So he didn't have what we would have today as the equivalency of a high school diploma. He was an absolute failure. There's no way that he was going to even be able to be allowed to take a tour of the Stanford University campus today. But just because the elder Stanford seemed ill-suited to start a university, that didn't stop him. Being underqualified had never stopped him. It hadn't stopped him from embarking on a scandalous political career or an exploitive business career. It hadn't stopped him from becoming a technological pioneer so powerful, he fundamentally changed this country. This was the absolute, not only high tech of the time, but the massively so. You could think of it as Google, Apple, Facebook all rolled into one. What Leland Stanford did, through a bunch of shifty means, which we will get to, is knit the country together with railroads. At the time, it seemed impossible. Laying tracks through mountain ranges all the way out to the west? That would have created a networked country. But the technology seemed about as remote as the internet. Stanford, though, got it done. The federal government was completely, well, certainly the northern forces of the federal government were completely behind financing a transcontinental railroad. Not only because the Civil War was taking place and they were afraid of losing the, the West to become a slave state, but also they were concerned about there was a Mormon insurrection and they worried about another separatist movement there. The story of Leland Stanford is not well known, but it says a lot about how much, and in some ways how little, America has changed. Roland DeWalk is the author of the book American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. And he says Stanford would come to be worth more than the state he was helping to mold, California. 
And he would do it, in part, by truly being a self-made man. And, in part, by stealing from Californians and from federal taxpayers. Stanford was from New York. He'd lived in Wisconsin. But his life got really colorful when he arrived in San Francisco during the gold rush, where things were a little different from how they are now. Think of a dystopian Bacchanal, if you will. We're talking about a place where it was 95% men who were here to make a quick buck and were making quick bucks. The fortunes that were rolling into San Francisco from the gold fields were enormous. So the spending of money on particularly gambling, and some of the gambling was really horrific. For example, the original mission, Mission Dolores here in San Francisco, was the site of where they would bring in grizzly bears and bulls and put them in a marina and let them fight to death. And they would all be cheering and throwing bets down. The streets were just completely filthy. There were rats everywhere. Fires were taking place, engulfing the entire little Pueblo, which became a huge boom town on a very regular basis. There were prison ships off the coast where they used the abandoned ships of people coming around the Horn and, and across the Pacific from China, for example. It wasn't the kind of place that you would want to bring your mother-in-law. Into this world stepped Stanford, a man who, by this time, had failed at a lot. His brothers were already out in California, and they decided Stanford should open a store catering to gold miners, which is when things started to get sketchy and very, very lucrative. So he goes up there and he opens up a little Stanford Brothers store where he starts selling cigars and liquor and, and mining equipment and stuff like that. But Stanford had managed to become a lawyer when he was Wisconsin. So he went to the county supervisors there in that county, which would have been Placer County at the time, and he said to them, you know what, you need a justice of the peace. Why don't you appoint me justice of the peace? And they said, okay, sure, you could be justice of the peace. So <laughs> they're showing his first real signs of being able to be not only an entrepreneur, but conflating public office with his ability to make money, ran his courtroom in his saloon. He opened up a saloon. Where better, where better to run a courtroom, really, than in a saloon? I you would have looked forward to that <laughs> as a former reporter. I think that would have been a great story. But perhaps by today's standards, even by the standards of those days, that was a pretty remarkable and brazen thing to do. But obviously, he made a lot of money, and it taught him an important lesson. You know, putting these two things together, having— Political power, using that, leveraging a little bit for my own private fortune, seems to work pretty well. And that was a profound lesson for him. That lesson would become most helpful when a young engineer named Theodore Judah came along. Judah had pitched the venture capitalists of San Francisco, though they probably didn't call themselves that then, on a great discovery he had made. He had found a pass through the Sierra Nevada Mountains, a pass that could complete the network of railroads linking the U.S., but for a while, no one seemed to care. So then he goes up to Sacramento, and he goes to a small uh, group of businessmen, and he says, hey, you know, here's this great plan. And they all say, thanks, but no thanks. But in the back of the room, there's this guy named Collis Huntington. And Collis Huntington is a very wily trader who also came out right after the beginning of the gold rush. And Collis Huntington had a store right next to Stanford's store. And he saw Stanford as a guy who made a really great front man. If they were going to get some government money, maybe Stanford could be going to some political office, 
So they said, hey, um, you want to meet my partner, Leland Stanford, and a couple other guys, Hopkins and Crocker, and uh, come up to the office like tomorrow night and tell us about your plan. This way, Leland Stanford was introduced to the possibility of cashing in on this marvelous, big, high-tech, entrepreneurial enterprise of the early part of 18, uh, late 1850s. Hmm. So... You know, I've heard all my life, as I think many people have, about robber barons like Vanderbilt and Carnegie. Um, You say, though, Stanford might have been more successful than many of the people that we've heard of as having sort of built America, um, you know, in the sort of second half of the 1800s. Why was he more successful? And and then, you know, why isn't he in that pantheon? (laughs) Well, of course, we have to define success, and everybody has a completely different idea of success, right? But if we're going to measure business success, I sort of in a a normative, you know, standard way, he had many more employees than any Carnegie's or any Rockefeller's. He had 12, 15, some estimate up to 20,000 employees working under him. He made not just tens of millions of dollars, but he made hundreds of millions of dollars. The kinds of money that was available and he had in his back pocket was 10 times the size of the entire state budget in California. So there are many ways to kind of look at this, but at the very, very, very least, you have to acknowledge that Stanford was at least, and I would argue, a little bit more important than the fabled East Coast titans that we do read so much about. And being a Californian, you'll forgive me, but I think most of us out here would probably suspect that a lot of that has to do by the East Coast media dominance that only is beginning to be recognized, I think, back there. Hmm. This may be true of a lot of robber barons, um, but uh you you kind of argue that Stanford was not so much an immoral person. Um, it, it, he was a bad and person who believed all sorts of bad things, <laughs> so much as he was an amoral person. He really just believed whatever was good for him that day or that hour that you, that you asked him. Um, why do you make that distinction that maybe not immoral, but, but amoral, yeah? My distinction on that one here is a guy who did have a standard, one standard in his life, and it was his family. He was absolutely devoted to his family. I think the creation of Stanford University as a memorial to his dead son speaks to that. Mm -hmm. When he was speaking to President Elliott at Harvard, he told him explicitly he wanted to create something that would keep his wife not only engaged but productively so uh, in the event that he would pass away uh, before she did. He was always concerned about his family, but when it came to anything else, he did not matter. If he had said something on Tuesday that didn't work on Wednesday, he would simply lie Mm -hmm. and say, I never said that. And of course, we didn't have videotape and we didn't have radio and we didn't have podcasts and we just didn't have any kind of record, that sort of stuff. And he'd say, well, that was fake news. Excuse me. Maybe he didn't use that phrase, but he would say the newspaper reporter got that wrong. Hmm. But he did this over and over and over again. He would testify before congressional committees or before uh, investigators here in California. And then the next time, if it didn't work, he would simply change his mind and say, I never said that. This was a guy who absolutely had no compunction about lying, about taking money that wasn't his, about not paying back loans that he owed. I think those are pretty immoral and even amoral standards. Hmm. I'll, I'll give one example. Uh, 
of just sort of this being all over the map kind of thing. He uh, changed his position on immigration from Asia a lot, which was a very important issue in California. Um, and he, I mean, sometimes he was for it, sometimes he was against it. And it really depended, it seems like, on what benefited him personally at that very moment. Absolutely. And that's a perfect example of it. And it's very current today. Of course, immigration has always been an issue or long been an issue here for us in America. We're a nation of immigrants. But he was vehemently anti-Chinese, just an out-and-out racist. He called them the dregs of society and much worse. But when he had a real shortage of workers for his railroad, he suddenly decided, well, the Chinese are great. We have all these Chinese people here. And he employed, again, some 12,000 Chinese immigrants who came to California. But when he was done with them, then he immediately pivoted when he became a United States senator and began denigrating the Chinese again. Even again, uh, one of his brothers, Josiah spoke about this in his memoirs, in a dictated memoirs, that he said, you know, it's really odd. I used to argue with Leland about this, that the Chinese were actually a great benefit to this country. But when he turned out that he could use them, he then suddenly agreed with me. Hmm. Okay, we are going to pause here for just a minute. We're going to be back with more about the life of Leland Stanford, uh, including his run for governor, his theft of taxpayer dollars. And then the creation of Stanford University and Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm talking to Roland DeWalk. He's the author of the book American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford from WGBH Radio and PRX. I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Some people have business careers and then go on to run for office. Some people are politicians and then go on to make a small fortune. And some don't really see the need to separate the two. This really was his great triumph. This is when Leland Stanford had left behind his feckless youth and found his calling when he could double dip. That's Roland DeWalk, author of American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford which tells the story of a man whose name is incredibly well-known because of the university that he dreamed up, but whose story isn't. And Stanford's story is about as colorful as it gets. By the early 1860s, years before Leland and Jenny Stanford had their only son, for whom the university would be named, Stanford had figured out an ingenious way to make a fortune, run a company and run a state at the same time. He found himself elected governor through a lot of uh, machinations, but in large measure because he was the first Republican nominee, and he rode the coattails of Abraham Lincoln. So he became governor of California in 1861, and he immediately set about raising taxes to pay for the railroad. They had already had what today would be billions of dollars of federal money to uh, fund for the railroad, but they figured that wasn't enough. So he went to the state legislature and began to bully them. That's a word that's used in historic documents by people who are in the state legislature. Huh. These are direct quotes into passing huge bond measures. Now, of course, a bond measure is essentially a tax. you got to pay back the bond, and the taxpayers got to pay back the bond with interest. And he wasn't just done with that in the state legislature. He went to 
every county that could possibly be affected by that and did the same thing. And then he went down to the cities and he went to the city councils and he threatened them and he would say the same thing, essentially. If you guys don't pony up a whole ton of tax money for this railroad enterprise, we're going to run the railroad around you. We'll even build new towns. There are many new towns in California where just railroad towns where they did just that. It wasn't an empty threat. And at the end of that, one can also point out that he was not only a Republican governor, but he ran on a platform. He said, we're going to balance the budget. We're not going to have any more taxes. Another instance of him saying one thing and doing another. Do you think that Californians, I mean, he was their governor, uh, resented the fact that he was kind of taking them for a ride to line his pockets, or did they just not realize what was happening? At first, they, it was no resentment because they did not realize what was happening, and the Transcontinental Railroad to them promised everything. We'll be able to be able to trade all our fruit uh, with uh, the people back east, and in return, they will send us more of their manufactured goods, which are costing too much for us to manufacture here. So it's going to bring wealth. It's going to bring opportunity. We're all for that. But as the railroad opened, things happened a little bit differently than what they had expected. One, they suddenly were paying a whole ton of more money into the state and to the federal coffers here in taxes. And the West Coast was flooded with cheap East Coast goods and put a ton of small businesses in California mm. out of business entirely. So massive unemployment took place as a result of that. And <laughs> then the resentment about conflating his business with his governmental powers, his duties to the citizens began to really become apparent. And the tide turned very dramatically against Leland Stanford. Silicon Valley started to become, in many ways, the place it is not that long after Stanford uh, passed away. What role do you think did his life as a disruptor in business and in technology play in terms of setting the groundwork for what we all sort of know was to come and what Stanford, the university, sits at the center of? I think any objective way of looking at this comes to the same conclusion. There would be no Silicon Valley without Stanford University in the way that we know it now. And there certainly would be no Stanford University without Leland Stanford Sr. Now, here's the most important part of all this that glues us together. When Stanford put together his plans for Stanford University, he did not see it as a traditional university, much like Harvard or like Yale or Columbia, some of the other uh, established schools on the East Coast. He saw it as a trade school. He denigrated the intellectual emphasis at these universities. He thought that studying literature and history, and we could say Latin as well, were pointless and, and didn't really have any effect and were passe. He was looking at some other schools that had already kind of gone in that direction, such as Cornell. And he wanted to have a school that was going to create jobs for what he considered practical people, engineers, people who could design rails, people who could plot railroad tracks and so on and so forth. And just as a quick example of his thinking and how it manifested itself, the library that he had approved for the university was probably smaller than the one that you have at home, Car. I'll bet you that you have more books at home than he had for the entire university library. He thought that that sort of thing was just silly. So he had 8,000 plus acres there to play with, and he created this 
this trade school, there was a horses department at the time, and it existed for a long time after he died. Less than a generation after he and his wife passed away, we have already the beginnings of people who are doing exactly what he had hoped to do. They're studying electricity. And it was a gentleman named Frederick Terman, for example, a pretty famous guy, because he said, you know, gosh, we're supposed to be doing stuff like electrical engineering and building things like that. Wouldn't it be really cool if we took some of our land that we have here, our 8,000-plus acres, and had an opportunity for some of our brighter students to develop a business there? I have these two guys right now, the Varian brothers, who are pretty smart. Let's let them do their thing. And, of course, the Varian brothers lead to people like Robert Noyce, and Robert Noyce leads to the Silicon Valley in a very direct way, even very important and very successful entrepreneurs of our time, such as James Clark of Netscape, has said very plainly, Stanford is probably the reason Silicon Valley is here. And of course, there are other factors uh, that play into this. But without this critical ingredient that Leland Stanford had set up, there would arguably, and I think this is a very strong argument, would be no Silicon Valley where it is today. There may not be a Silicon Valley at all. Hmm. The final proof in the pudding to me is this. This doesn't exist anywhere else. There are only imitators and are not very successful. Hmm. One of the paradoxes here is that you've got this incredibly rich man just... uh, you know, just fabulously wealthy, obviously, is endowing a major university. He was almost bankrupt by the time he died. How is that possible? He just borrowed huge sums of money all the time. If you look at the accounting books, you will see that although Huntington took out a certain amount of money and Crocker, these are the other we call the big four, Mm -hmm. uh, his partners, took out a certain amount of money. The amount of money that he was borrowing from these dummy corporations they had set up to launder money time and time and time again was extraordinary. And he didn't really pay attention to whether he had the capital or the equity or anything behind it. So by the time he had passed away, he was deeply in debt. But the assets that were left, which were his stock in the railroad company, would have barely covered it. But at the same time, the federal government said, we want our money back. Stanford kept saying, I don't owe the money to the federal government, even though they had signed papers that said we're going to pay the money back. Stanford, the university, said no. No, pardon me. Leland Stanford himself, yes. Leland Stanford himself had been saying, although we borrowed these huge sums of money from the federal government and we agreed and we signed a contract that we would pay it all back in 30 years with interest, started saying, you know, we've done this wonderful thing for the country and we shouldn't have to pay it back. So the federal government sued the estate and it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Fortunately, one of the people on the court was somebody who was there because he was appointed through Leland Stanford. Fortunately, Jenny Stanford. (laughs) One of the people on the Supreme Court was beholden to Leland Stanford? Stephen Field. Okay, well, there you go. Okay. (laughs) Always Always helpful. Always helpful. Always helpful to have somebody on the Supreme Court that you are friends with. Yeah. Uh, A lesson we've learned in history. And Jenny, of course, was uh, pretty well wired at this point. And she just went to Washington and went to the White House and talked to the president, who was a buddy of his. And he leaned on his attorney general. Nevertheless, they won the case. Hmm. Jenny's estate was protected, and they didn't have to pay the money back until a little bit later. When you step back and you think about Leland Stanford, this person who 
as is most famous, I would argue, for for starting a university, but also was the governor of California, you know, was a monopolist, I mean, incredibly, incredibly wealthy man and, and very successful man. How do you think about what his legacy is and if there's any kind of uh, resonance for us today in thinking about the current world around us? Remember, he was also a United States senator, yeah. just a, somebody who also used a lot of power there. Right. His legacy clearly is, number one, the university. Stanford University, despite uh, Leland Stanford's sort of, uh, shall we say, sketchy past, is a remarkably important and successful and excellent world-class university, arguably the it school to go to today. I don't think there's any question about that, and in large measure because of its most successful product, the Silicon Valley. But his legacy personally also has to be thought about this. Here's a man who did combine his political power with his business power, and we had it seemed to have learned about that by the early part of the 20th century when we had reformers such as in the East Coast, Theodore Roosevelt, in the Midwest, Robert La Follette, and the West Coast, Hiram Johnson, who said we cannot have these sort of conflicts between corporate greed and government power. It, we need to break up these monopolies. We need to regulate, so on and so forth. And we passed a whole lot of legislation to do that throughout the 20th century. In an attempt to try to put some controls over people who had absolutely no vested interest in doing anything but taking money from people. Now, today, one could argue, and I don't want to get political about this, but one could argue that we seem to have forgotten some of those very important lessons. We're finding ourselves in the same situation here, where people, again, are combining their political power with their desire to make lots of money. And the people who pay the price are you and me the American citizen, the American resident, anybody who has anything to do with us, America. Roland DeWalk is a journalist, a historian. He's the author of American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. Roland, thank you so much. Thank you so much back. got a lot more on our website about Leland Stanford's wife, Jenny, who oversaw the university for years after he died. Jenny's death in 1905 appears to have been a case of poisoning. Many experts have concluded it was murder, and it's a crime which was then covered up for a century. That strange and tangled story is at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.